It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Right? Tale of two cities. Call me Ishmael from Moby Dick. Some of the great opening lines of some of the classic books. And then the the third one is one of my favorites. It comes from C.S. Lewis in one of his Narnia books. His name was Clarence Eustace Scrub. And he almost deserved it. You see, when authors go to write that first line of a book, I mean, can you imagine the thought they put into it? You imagine they're trying to set the scene. They're really trying to really set the table. They're trying to get people to understand what's coming. What should I, what should I start to expect? And today when we read from Mark, I think unfortunately we've heard it. We've heard some of this religious language so much that it kind of just rolls off the tongue. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, this is written in Isaiah the prophet. Right? We, it just, it's okay, we've heard that before. It sounds very religious. I know some of those religious words, and, you know, Jesus gets mentioned. That, that sounds good. But what I want us to hear is that what Mark was saying, and if you look at the Greek, he's saying, I have a royal decree. What I'm getting ready to say right now is of utmost importance. There is a new beginning that is happening. There is a new start. Everything is being made anew. So listen to this story. Because there was a promise that was given to the Jewish people about someone who would come to save the world, to save all mankind. And he has come. All things are new. And now this message, it was ignored. It was missed by even the Jewish religious people. But don't miss it. Listen. This is a message for you. It is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the first line of Mark says. It starts to resonate with our hearts and our minds. What is this great announcement? What is this good news, this gospel? And how do I receive it? And in this advent time what we're being told is that we must be prepared be prepared prepare your hearts prepare your minds to receive that all that God has for us and this is what Mark is saying it's what John the Baptist is prophesying it's what Isaiah was echoing 400 years in the past that this is the day receive the good news So how is it that the religious leaders of that day missed it? The thing that all scriptures point to? The culmination of all time? The most important event in the history of this universe? How did they miss it? How did these scholars who've been reading the Bible over and over in the synagogues and in the temple, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, how did they miss it? I think it's something that we need to reflect on today as we prepare our hearts. Instead of us saying, well, man, they missed it. They must be a little slow on the uptake. They must have just been ignoring it. I think if we look at some of the reasons they missed it, it might actually resonate with us in this Advent season. The first thing that I think it's helpful for us to understand what these Sadducees and what these Pharisees did with the good news of the prophets, with the promises of God, with the covenants of Abraham, with the covenant of Noah and 
and the rainbow and all of these good things were Lord saying, I'm trying to restore what was true in the Garden of Eden, of Eden, where I walked with you, where I created you, and now God says, I want to walk with you and be in relationship with you all the time. This is where we're heading. And you see what the Jews did, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, is they took that relational message and they reduced it to a bunch of rules and regulations. It started off with the Ten Commandments and, you know, of course, whenever you get a bunch of rules, people kind of break the rules. They try to find the loophole around the rules. They try to work around the rules. And so you know what you do to help them out, right? You make more rules, right? And so you make more rules, and then they made more rules about those Ten Commandments. And by the time Jesus came around, they had worked up about 613 rules that if you just follow, God will love you. You see, that was the message that everybody knew. If you follow the rules, you see, they had not only 613 rules, they had tomes of books. They spent hours on end figuring out how to follow the rules so that God might somehow give you his stamp of approval. That you might make it through the process. That you might pass the test. If you become a good rule follower. Or at least better than the person next to you. Right? And that's what Jesus confronted these religious leaders. They're comparing themselves. Oh, I'm better than that guy. I'm better than that guy. So I must have God's stamp of approval. We think we can earn it. We think we deserve it. We think that we can do something in our own power. We can do the religious rules, and that will set us up for all that God has for us. And they missed it because that has nothing to do with it. Yes, the law is good. Jesus says the laws are good. The Ten Commandments are good. Yes, love God. Love your neighbors. Honor your mother. Yes, these are good. But you can't live fully into the law you're not capable of it and so you need good news you need a savior you need not more rules that you can follow you don't need more explanation on the rules you need someone who will love you and forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness from all of your sins this is what the messiah is this is what being saved looks like and they missed it Another reason I think they missed is they understood Messiah. They misunderstood Savior. You see, they had gotten it worked up in their hearts and minds that we have a pretty good idea of what it's going to look like when the Messiah comes. Because we are a conquered people living under Roman rule. We're being oppressed. Our religious rights are being trampled on. We can't do what we want. We can't say what we want. We're under the thumb of political authority. And when the Messiah comes, he will defeat Rome. He will throw out all those authorities and all of those people who are making all these rules. And then we will be in charge. And we'll do it the right way. When we have the power and control to make the rules and to govern the people, we'll do it right. And all things will be good. God said, no, <laughs> you weren't even supposed to have a king. You were supposed to be a theocracy. You were supposed to be a people where your God 
was the one who had all the power and control. He was the one that we worshiped. He was the one that would govern the world. He was the one. And you want to put yourselves in that place. You see, the Sadducees and Pharisees, even in that broken down community where the Jews were oppressed, in that nowhere corner of the Roman Empire, but at least they had some power and some control. They were the head of the temple. They were the head of the of the synagogues they had and among the Jewish people they had the most power and they had the most control and the Messiah was going to mean that that simply was going to increase that their position was just going to go up the ladder and a Messiah meant more power and control you see it's it's the same thing as my lottery dream right when I win the lottery that I can I can handle the 200 million most people couldn't but I bet I could because the way it is, is because now I have the power and the control over something, my life or whatever, my circumstances or whatever. And I will use all that power and control to make things good. Is to how I rationalize it and how I reason it. And so we live a life just like these guys thinking if I just had some power, if I just had some more control, if I just had more influence over my circumstances, that would be great that would be messiah that would be saving me if you could just trust me to make the decisions for myself in my own life and for probably those around me in fact the more people you put me in charge of the better off things are going to be and we convince ourselves of that but i think at the heart of it the reason they weren't prepared is because their expectation had waned. What had been promised, what had been foretold, what the prophets said, it had been 400 years since any scripture had been written. It seemed like God was silent. And I think their unmet expectations led to some disillusionment about God. I thought God was going to do this. I thought God was going to save us from the Romans. I thought God was going to restore the temple. I thought God was going to establish his kingdom right here in Jerusalem with the Jews being in control. All of that, and it doesn't seem to be coming true. And it seems to be generations after generations, and I don't think God's coming through on his promise. And it turns either into resentment or a hopelessness that God will act. And it can turn into a cynicism about who God is. I think we have the very same struggle in our own lives, just like these Jewish religious leaders who've missed the message of who Jesus is. I know it's true in my own life because there's people whom I love, who I want to be healed, who I want to know God, who I want things to be, they're just under such bondage, they're, they're just suffering in so many ways, and I want God to act in their life, and I want it now. And I wanted it yesterday. And I wanted it last month. And I wanted it last year. And it didn't happen the way that I wanted it. And my expectations are being challenged. And the enemy keeps telling me over and again, you can't trust God. He's not going to come through on his promises. He's not going to deliver. All those things that you believe aren't true. Look how long he's waited. You see, the other reading for today, which we didn't read, because we have a rule of only two readings for COVID, um, is 2 Peter 3.8. And in that is that great line, to God 
One day is like a thousand years. Right? And it starts to put into perspective how impatient we are with God doing what he's supposed to do. And how easy it, us, easy it is for us to grow in our discontentment. And so we miss what God has. So Advent says, be prepared. Those things are real. Those ways that the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Jews, how they missed it, it is real today. And so we need to be prepared in our hearts and minds. We have to prepare ourselves. And when we don't prepare, it doesn't go well. We uh, had the opportunity to listen to my son's thesis, his senior thesis from Wofford on theodicy being made clear through eschatology. I'm not sure what that means, but I, I should. <laughs> I acted like I did. And, um, but it was at 6 p.m., and we were gonna, you, you had a way to go online, and, you know, and, and we could watch it virtually. And so I'm working right up till I had meetings right up till that 6, and then 6 o'clock comes, and the computer couldn't work, and we, we ended up getting it on the phone, right? So we got it on the phone. So you know, it's hard to see. So we just jumped in bed, and we're watching me and Louise on the phone, and and it was 6 o'clock, so we thought, well, you know, let's have a glass of wine while we're watching this. And so as he's presenting and some of the atheist professors are challenging, we're sitting in bed drinking wine. I'm going, no, that's ridiculous. What are you? And then about 20 minutes into it, my mom texts me, do you know you're on the screen with everybody else? <laughs> we were not prepared for that. So my son, as he presents his uh, thesis to his parents, you know, drinking wine in bed, <laughs> the good news is he was prepared, and he did a fantastic job. And the basic gist of what his point was, what all that means was, is that so many people are trying to understand this world, try to figure out how things work, what's going on. And his point is, and there's no way you can understand it until you understand that Christ is coming again. He's come. But he's coming again. There's a second coming. That's the eschatology. That's the big fancy word. But he's coming again where all things will be made true. His judgment will finally come. And everything, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be an everlasting eternal life that will be offered to everybody. And in light of that, there's no way you can understand this world. There's no way you can understand suffering and how it works. There's no way you can understand the problem of evil. There's no way you can understand all of the challenges until you realize there's a second coming. No truer words have been spoken. We somehow have to understand that that preparation is now. We live in that in-between time between when Christ was born incarnate, incarnate 2,000 years ago and came and died on the cross and when he's coming again to judge the world. That's the context in which we live. That's the reality in which we walk in. And we, when we've missed that reality, we're not prepared for what God is up to. So during the Advent season, the, the church talks a lot about preparation. And we do things. It's, it's great. We, we, last week or whatever, the week before, we prepared this church, man. We, we got together as a community and we decorated and we put lights up and I mean, good night. The, if you dr drive around here in the evening, it's just spectacular. It's beautiful. I mean, it was, we had the party last night. The preparation that went into that was, was critical for the success of the party. I love to hear 
Graham's testimony about the spirit of the people that's just a new, a fresh wind blowing. You see, preparation's important for those things to happen. And so we do physical preparation. It's an important thing for us to do. And we were talking about this with the staff about Advent and, and uh, preparing all the uh, things. And, and I, I, sorry to embarrass you, Juliana said, well, you know, it's November. Of course I've finished doing all my shopping and all my <laughs> presents are wrapped. And it's all done because I want to enjoy the season. So I've done it all. I thought, man, that's a preparation. It's incredible. But we do these things. We prepare physically okay, to prepare our hearts emotionally and to prepare our hearts spiritually. They're not disconnected from one another. The, the physical world in which we do, we prepare our homes. We prepare for people. We prepare for Christ. Like the ten virgins preparing with the oil lamps for the coming of the bridegroom, the second coming, the coming of Christ. We are to be prepared physically. It makes sense. But we also say we got to prepare emotionally. Uh, I think it was Philip who said in staff meeting, he says, the shift that he tries to make in this season is instead of thinking about presence to people, I think about being present with people. And he's saying, I'm trying to make that shift from what presents am I buying for Christmas and who gets what to how can I be fully present with the people around me in my conversations, at home, not distracted by the busyness of everything. And I thought that was a great image of what preparation looks like in our hearts and minds. One of our family preparation is Friday after Thanksgiving. We get the Christmas tree. We actually pull out the Christmas tree. We set it up. And we have ornaments, and every one of our kids has their own ornaments. And we have our ornaments. And every ornament, as we put it up, we have a story to it. It's a story about our, when we first met and our honeymoon and then the vacation that we went on and when we went out to Colorado. And we're telling the stories over and over again, the same stories every Christmas with the same ornaments. We tell the stories over and over. We're preparing our hearts. We're preparing a culture of remembering what God has done. And then we have a list of things that we prayed for throughout the years. And to see our kids now say, golly, 25 years ago we prayed that we would have a child. And God answered that prayer. And then we prayed for this for three years. And it didn't come. And then this prayer was answered. And then this prayer was answered years later. And there's prayers on there that we've prayed that have not been answered yet. But that's why we tell the stories. That's why we need the testimonies until we don't fall into hopelessness and despair. We believe that God will come through and he will answer those prayers. But a day is like a thousand years to him. And I can't impart my will on the Father, but trust in him that he will do it in a good and right time. So we're prepared. But again, as we think about preparation, it's all too quick. Going back to that first mistake, to think that preparation means we're going to now prepare ourselves for, for Jesus coming by acting right and doing good and being better. That's not what the preparation is. That's going back to the law. That's going back to the religious spirit. That's going back to I'm going to earn my way into heaven. That's not the preparation like I'm going to get be better and do more and really get God really happy with me because that second coming's coming any time now. Instead, it is a preparing of our hearts and it really is this. Are you prepared for God to do a work in you? Are you prepared, not for you to do all this work, but are you prepared for God to do a work in you? 
when we listen to John the Baptist and we hear from Isaiah about he's going to tear every mountain down and make every valley new and clear the rubble and make the path straight. Okay, if you lived in those days, what that image is going to stir up in you is the Roman roads. Do you know what made Rome so powerful? What made Rome so rich? What made Rome conquer you know, most of the Western civilization? Is the ability to create these straight roads that they could move. And you could have mobility. And you could get places where there was army or trade or services or whatever needed to happen. And the way they had to build these roads is they had to tear down every mountain, make every valley rise up, and to make straight roads. And so this analogy was that work that God is about to do. And what he's saying is, what are the mountains that are in your life that are keeping you from that straight path to God? What are those insurmountable things that you think can't be overcome that God can make low? What are those valleys in your life, those places of suffering and despair and pain that you think can never be filled that you will allow God to start to fill? That's what the preparation looks like. Preparation is about the work that God is doing in your life. Listen to this quotation from C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. God's doing a work in me. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing up a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. Because he intends to come and live in it himself. That is the work that God is doing in you. He's cleaning out all those things. He is building in a palace in it because he intends to live in you for eternity. Don't settle for a little cottage life that's peaceful and serene and controllable. He is building you into a palace. He's building us into a palace people, a kingdom people. And so preparation means this. It starts with this. It's, it's just an honesty about reality. Preparing your hearts and minds is an honesty about reality. It's an honesty, man, things aren't going great. Things are broken. We live on the other side of the second coming, and so we understand that things are amiss. Nothing is in its right order. Nothing will work out. Nothing will be perfected before the second coming. That's the reality. There will always be a tension. It says we are aliens. We are, we are just visiting this time. Until there's the new heaven and the new earth. So we have to be real with that. We have to be real with, hey, we're still broken. We still sin. We still blow it. We still miss it. We still do things that God's not happy with. There's an honesty about the reality in the world in which we live in. It's not put on the fake mask and act like we have it all together like the religious leaders. It's not play games like most people do about what's really important in the world. It's being honest with reality of where we are and who we are and what it looks like. 
And the second thing that we do to prepare our hearts is surrender. We surrender to the work that God's going to do. You know what? He won't come into your house and knock out walls and do all that stuff if you say no. If you lock the doors, if you close the windows, if you deny him entrance, he won't be able to do that work. But if you surrender, if you say, Lord, come in and build that palace that you intend in my life. Broken vessel that I am, I surrender to you. I surrender to the power of your Holy Spirit to do the work that you intend in me. I am sorry that I tried to do it in my own power. I'm sorry that I tried to follow all the rules and thought that was the way into heaven. I am sorry that I tried to take power and control in my life. I am sorry that I keep going back to those same mistakes over and over again that the Pharisees and the Pharisees made that I make on a daily basis. Forgive me for that. And Lord, come. Come in power. Come into my life. Come into this abbey and do the work that you've intended to do. We are your people. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, is that he did come, and he took on the form of a human. And his death on the cross allowed that forgiveness of sins. And then he said, and John the Baptist promised, that he will come and he will send, he will baptize you, he will fill you with the Holy Spirit, and he will do a new work in your heart and life. He is working inside of you every day. Receive it. And then... You will be my messengers to this lost and broken world. You will be a light in the darkness. You will be a light in the Pauli's Island community and beyond to who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and what is being offered to you. And we then, like Mark, will say, this is the beginning of the good news. Hear about it. We are his messengers. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written. In Isaiah the prophet. And he will make your path straight. He will tear down the mountains in your life. He will build up those valleys. Come, receive, join this community of the faithful. And that's the gospel of the Lord. Amen. Amen.